a few months ago, our family got all dressed up for our first formal occasion since the COVID lockdowns began a couple of years earlier. Um, Our kids uh, bought suits and dresses, one or the other, and as as people got dressed after months in our pyjamas, it seemed as we looked at each other, the tone was, look at you, look at you, look at us, wow, as the camera came out. And the party brought together many people in, in the local community who were feeling the same way post-lockdown. Some relief and fun for a little while. For some, it was relief from the pressure of homeschooling or from working from home, a lonely apartment, or just the monotony of life. Recently, uh, we met a woman about my age, Ashley and I, in conversation, who uh, had known Ashley before, and the conversation came around to how she was going and how she'd been. And she said, perhaps as a mantra, always good, always good. But I noticed her face was saying something different. People are not made to live without God. Some give it a a red-hot go with a mantra and a strained face. I didn't know what was going on in, in that woman's life, but I wondered. Others give up on life in many ways well before it's over. It's hard enough to live, isn't it, let alone aim, as this sermon series has it, to to live a life well, to have a life well lived. It may just seem out of reach. We may have given up on it years ago. It seems too ambitious, too much effort and energy. If I just get through life, that will be enough, we might think. What Peter presents here is not a powerless, untrue mantra, always good, always good, Rather, he provides what that woman truly needs. We think of the woman at the well, too, the living water that would quench her thirst. He points to a higher way of human life in which the power and life of God are not only accessible to us, but they fuse with our lives, that we, too, might live on a higher plane. It presents a wow, look at you picture where ordinary people are seen in an extraordinary real, permanent light. What Peter presents here in these verses is a glorious picture of churches like ours. So if you feel you're very ordinary, there is much here for you. If you feel discouraged, weak, just hanging on, there is much here for you. For any kids here today who might enjoy Super Mario Brothers, probably none here, but God gives Christians a power-up where an ordinary person can operate on a higher plane by taking, in in Mario's case, a mushroom or another pill. But they they take new capacities and powers and they become invincible for a little while. Well, so too we as Christians, new capacities, new powers, stronger convictions and fitted for higher purposes. This is no mind game and it's no mere attitude change. This is a rebirth and a refit for eternity in which we share Christ's immortality and divine life, that the age to come has entered into this body. The person and power of the age to come has entered our lives, and he wants us to know it. But why does God want us to know about it? Why does this matter to us? Well, just as a gifted child might develop faster if someone notices her gifts, tells her and helps her to more confidently develop them. That can lead to faster progress. 
I remember hearing a commentator, I watched the football, and an NRL commentator was saying about a teenager, 19, 20 years old, in one of his first games of NRL, and he said, when this kid realises how good a footballer he is, he'll be unstoppable. He's better than he realises. His mind hasn't caught up with the reality. He doesn't yet realise what he can do. What if this were the case for ordinary Christians like us? Wouldn't that be good to realise sooner rather than later, now rather than at the end of our lives or when we go into glory? Peter here is saying, take a look at you, just as he did at the beginning of his first letter. Why? What does God see in us? Well, the, the risen Lord Jesus has fitted us firstly with faith, secondly with power, and thirdly with knowledge. First then, a a life well lived is possible because God gives us faith. Look with me at verse 1. Simon Peter. Uh, Just the name tells a story, doesn't it? Jesus renamed Simon the Jew to become Petros, or Peter the Rock, upon which the Lord would establish his church. And we saw that take place in the book of Acts. Although Peter was probably by now in the mid-60s AD, seen as a celebrity, a Christian celebrity, Peter had a humbler, more substantial view of himself. Verse 1, we read, Simon Peter, a doulos, a slave, a servant, and apostle. An apostle meaning a commissioned messenger of Jesus Christ. Notice how both words point upward. Servant and messenger. Whose servant? Whose messenger? In the Old Testament, these humble-looking words actually carry great significance. A servant of the Lord, a messenger of the Lord, was someone not to be taken lightly, not because of who the identity of the person was, but because of whose servant that person was. Peter here says he's a servant of Jesus Christ, a messenger of Jesus Christ. Not a Jesus Christ who merely was, but the risen Lord Jesus who very much is, as we saw in the book of Acts, still reigning, still powerful, still very much in control of world affairs. And how does the risen Lord Jesus want us to see ourselves? He says there in verse 1, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. A few things. First, notice the way Jesus is described here. He acts and his salvation is coming because he's the righteous one, like the righteous God of the Old Testament who saves in his righteousness. And secondly, he he is there, our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's an adjectival phrase, our God and Saviour. It's not talking about God as one thing and Jesus Christ as another, but our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in the grammar of the Greek language there. Now, some of my friends have gone on to become quite famous. I found out one of our church members was one of my school friends. I won't identify him or her. But someone in my school community went on to be or to form the band Human Nature. One played hockey for Australia. One played soccer for Australia. One starred for many years in a a well-known TV show, Home and Away. One now leads a large Australian company. But as far as I know, no one calls any of these people our Lord and our our God and our Saviour. We just don't go that far, do we, towards other humans. That language is rightly reserved for another order, Who would call another fellow human being that? Well, even at the end of his life, Peter is still calling this friend that he came to know, this friend called Jesus, 
not just my God and Savior, but he says our God and Savior. Peter realizes that his Lord is the Lord of the church, that the church's faith, verse 1, is just as valid, just as precious for joining us with Jesus' merits as his own faith. And when you hear jokes or stories about getting into heaven, often it's Peter, the one at the pearly gates. No one doubts, of all the people in biblical history, Peter seems the one most likely to be in heaven. Peter says, your faith is as precious as our faith. We trusted in the living Lord Jesus that we saw before and after he was raised. You haven't seen him, but you trust in the one that we trust in. And so he says there, your faith is as precious or as effective, ESV, as ours. Now, second, notice our faith is Jesus' gift, not our doing, that we have, verse 2, received a faith. If we zoom out for a moment... This givenness of our faith and blessedness is repeated. We've received faith, verse 1. We have grace and peace given in abundance, verse 2. He's given us all we need, verse 3. He called us, verse 3. Again, given us, verse 4. In other words, look at you, Christians. Look at you, DPC. Look at what God has done for you. Like a child waking up on Christmas morning. Christians are those living every day aware that we've been wonderfully outgiven by our parent, our our Father in heaven, that life is a gift. Our new lease of life is a gift. We live a life not grasping or hoarding or trying to pursue more for ourselves, but with a grateful sense of givenness, even outgivenness. The faith that joins us to the merits of Christ did not begin with our decision. We received it from God, often while we were looking for something else. As the song we sing sometimes uh, puts it, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. But then your spirit gave me life and opened up my eyes to see, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your son gave me endless hope and peace. Givenness. DPC, we are not the people of faith because, are we not the people of faith because God has kindly, year by year, Sunday by Sunday, one by one, made us a people who miraculously recognize, trust that Jesus truly is Lord. It doesn't seem a spectacular process, does it? But something spectacular has happened. The author C.S. Lewis describes his own conversion. He says he was the most dejected, and I quote, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England, and kicking and struggling, resentful and darting his eyes in every direction when he was saved, captured even by the one he refers to as the hound of heaven, the one that pursued him like prey. It sounds obvious, but Christians sometimes forget it is our saviour Verse 1, who saves? We don't save ourselves by trusting the Saviour. The Saviour saves us by granting us saving faith. And so when he calls us to salvation, his call is effective. When the risen Lord Jesus says, I have many people in this city, he intends and will save those people in his city. 
He sees the end from the beginning. He knows who are in his kingdom and he will make sure he saves them in the process of their earthly life. Or to put another way, God doesn't save innocent, innocent, earnest inquirers. He saves sinners before we become earnest inquirers. And so while I don't ask this every week, it's good for me to ask it occasionally. And I notice the preacher Spurgeon says preachers should be preaching this all the time, even to regular churchgoers. Friend, are you a sinner who has not yet been saved? Young, middle-aged, elderly, whatever your age this morning, have you personally accepted Jesus as Lord yet? I've conducted a number of funerals for churchgoers, but to be honest, sometimes I don't know where they stood with the Lord Jesus. Even after many years of attendance, even singing their favourite hymn perhaps at the service, will they be saved by Jesus as those who did make that decision to trust in him? Or will they sadly be condemned by Jesus for resisting him even while gathering time and time again? I'd love to be confident about that for everyone here, that each of you belong to Jesus. If you aren't sure about that, I'd love to talk to you or chat with an elder or someone who who you know is further along in the faith. The Saviour, Jesus Christ, says to the thirsty, I am the living water. Come to him if you have not already. Now you might think, but I don't feel like coming to Jesus. That's okay. You don't have to feel like coming to Jesus to take the drink he offers. But to drink, to have your thirst relieved, you must come to him. Ask the Saviour to save you if you want to be saved. It's very simple. So God gives us faith, point one, but he also blesses us with, secondly, with knowledge, verse two. Knowledge of Jesus and faith in Jesus go hand in hand. For your faith to exist, I take it all of us had a friend or read something. One of my friends actually saw one of those really cheesy old Christmas movies at Christmas time. When his family went to church, I said, I don't want to go, a Catholic family. He stayed at home and watched one of those corny little Christmas animation movies and the spirit just got him. And he believed in the Lord Jesus who was presented in that nativity um, show. But at some point, a message was spoken Someone's voice was heard. Your eardrums sensed a message that was then received by your brain. God used that information in your brain about Jesus to call you into his kingdom. Can you see that knowledge then and faith are very good friends? We need this in order to believe with our our hearts. And that if we strengthen one, we're strengthening the other. By the streams of God's living word, the seedlings become saplings, which become trees and and fruitful trees. Faith isn't a feeling so much as a relational confidence. We trust the one we learn is trustworthy. Good teaching grows faith. Fluffy teaching stifles faith. False teaching corrodes faith. And it's false teaching Peter is really concerned about when he writes this letter, as we'll see more in the coming weeks. That's why he's first emphasising the importance of knowledge here in the first verses. Gain knowledge, grow in knowledge, 
make yourself resilient with knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Notice there, verse 2, grace and peace be yours in abundance. How? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God's grace and peace flow and flow abundantly where people relationally and rationally know the Lord. Is there anything more more healthy and vital for a human? Just as faith was a channel of God's blessing, so here knowledge we see as a channel. God uses a means to grow and to prosper his people. It's why J.I. Packer wrote, Knowing God. It's why it's been a bestseller in Christian circles for many years. It's why I've spent 10 years teaching theology, the study of God, uh, overseas and in Australia. It's why we studied theology over Zoom during a lockdown period. Knowing God increasingly is increasingly life-giving. And so when we have a fa- hear a false thought or have a false thought, we can think about it in light of God's word and dismiss it. A bad motive, we can detect it better and replace it. A temptation to pursue, or we can deny it with respect to God and what we know of him. Yes, what is true and good of the human spirit within us is truer still when God the Holy Spirit dwells alongside or with our spirits. That God's purpose is to complete us with himself. That's why Adam was made to bear and to even hold the image and God himself in the person of the Spirit. That the eye of our existence can be enlivened by the eternal I am. That we who breathe lowercase b, a given capital case, breath. That our little lives, lowercase life, can become life. That God's, uh, that sense becomes sense, that vigor becomes vigor. That God's likeness becomes God's likeness in us. That we are indwelled with the Spirit, but then joined by the Spirit, the Spirit. And so where our little spirits are faint and listless and struggle and corrupted, God's spirit within us is perfect and complete. And we know that his spirit in us makes it his purpose to transform us to resemble Jesus. It's not little us against our sin, little us against the world. It's God, the Holy Spirit, fighting the same battle with us, within us even. How then do we grow in knowledge of Jesus and his word? Well, showing up at gatherings just like this is a really good start, as as we're all doing today. There are good podcasts out there some of you are listening to. Um, Some of you might be reading substantial books. And that's a great way to grow if you haven't been doing that in the past. I brought a couple with me, actually. So this is one we've used with our kids, uh, a young person's guide to knowing God, where it's basically um, the Westminster Confession or something like that, but I think it is the Westminster Confession, The truths of that conveyed through lots of stories that a missionary uh, wrote. Um, So lots of truths through through story in that one. Um, Earlier in the year, I was feeling tired and a bit overwhelmed. And so I looked for a book on that topic. This one's called You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. So rather than resent my limits or think I've only got limited time, that's actually a good thing. And so trying to bring God into my life with my thinking. You might like to talk to others about good things you're listening to or reading. So knowledge. 
I wonder if anyone remembers what bookends the book of Acts, what, what the theme was. Anyone remember? The kingdom of God. So the kingdom of God, chapter 1, the kingdom of God, chapter 28. What bookends the letter of 2 Peter? We see grace and knowledge there in verse 2, knowledge in verse 3. And if you turn to chapter 3, verse 18, notice what's written there. I take it this is a deliberate bookend of the letter. He writes, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We won't remove the deathly longings for career, reputation, more money, more success, more acceptance, image, leisure, pleasure. We can't remove this, these things from primary place in our lives by wishing them away. But we can overwhelm them by replacing them with something better. Our hearts will always be longing for something. And so Thomas Chalmers wrote, wrote the, the short little work, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection the expulsive power of a new affection that we need to replace rather than just try to dismiss. So in many spheres of life, knowledge is power. If we think of business, if we think of war, if we think of gardening, knowledge brings advantage or success. The accurate database for more targeted marketing, the cracked code or surveillance, to know what an enemy is planning before it acts. The gardener who knows what plant to plant when and where to make it successful. Well, as Proverbs teaches and as the Bible leads us to expect, knowing about life, having knowledge is critically important for a life well lived. To know the Lord, to fear and reverence the Lord is Proverbs' catch cry so that with his empowering, we can wisely navigate life in the Lord's world. And so we come next to empowering. Faith, knowledge, and third power in verses 3 to 4. God not only points to life and godliness, but empowers us to live it. Verse 3, still referring to the Lord Jesus, I take it. The Lord Jesus, divine power, has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him, who called us by or, or to his own glory and goodness. I find this really encouraging. It keeps me from apathy and it keeps me from despair. I take it Peter is still referring to the Lord Jesus there. That his inexhaustible power as the risen Lord is your and my and our church's sufficiency. And so while South Australia and perhaps New South Wales and Queensland next might run out of power, let's hope not, Christians need never fear that our life and godliness power source will run out. The power we need to live a godly life comes not from ourselves. Now, this isn't power to run a marathon. It's not necessarily physical energy, but it's power to live in a way that honours God. Peter will have lots to say about striving later. And so it's important we don't miss the battery, the power source from the kids' talk. Yes, there'll be room for growth. Yes, there's a call to strive for growth. But that striving is cooperating with our power source. Verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and goodness. What does this mean? Jesus says something similar in John 17. 
about the glory he shares. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. And he speaks of sharing the life of God and the life of his followers with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, through these things he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So where are we? If we're to summarize verses 1 to 4 briefly, the Lord gives us faith and knowledge in him, including knowledge of his promises for us, and his spirit empowers us for life and godliness, including the power to flee the world's moral corruption in a way the world can't do for itself, even if it wanted to. And so we watch the news and we can see the world seems stuck, as it always has been. But God gives us a power up and renews our minds to resist sin and to pursue the righteous life of our righteous God and Saviour. Verse 1. Look at you. That's what Peter's saying. And it's quite a picture. A human being becomes quite a different creature when he or she gives their life to Jesus. Jesus gives his life on the cross for us. Yes, But less appreciated, perhaps, in Christian circles is that he also gives spiritual empowerment to us. Received, grace, peace, multiplied, abundance, given us, given us, called us. And so you can't understand yourselves very well at all without serious reference to the person, the power, and the works of God. There's no such thing as an ordinary Christian but rather the awesome name, power, identity, blessedness of the Lord sweeps us up, brings us into a marriage even with himself as his bride, the church. The church has married the prince of heaven. He is the model husband. He loves and shares so kindly, so consistently, so sacrificially, so fully with us, his bride, the church. I mentioned I've been reading Charles Spurgeon recently. Um, His book, Look Unto Me, has short one-page devotions for each day. Listen to what he says on this, his devotion from June 30 as we close. It's from the passage, John 17, that I cited earlier. He writes, Observe the unparalleled generosity of the Lord Jesus. He has given us his all. Even a tithe of his possessions could make an entire universe filled with angels, rich beyond all measure. Yet he was not content until he had given us all he has. He invites us to sit with him and share his feast. If he simply had given us a small pension from his royal treasury, we would have reason enough to love him forever. But he has chosen to make his bride as rich as himself, and he will not not possess any glory or gift that she will not share with him. He loves for his people to take from his treasure and appropriate for themselves as much as they possibly can carry. The boundless fullness of Christ's all-sufficiency is as free to believers as the air we breathe. And so I call you, as Peter calls us, to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus, to come and to drink, because he gives us faith and he gives us knowledge and he gives us his power. Well, let's pray. 
Now, Father, we thank you that you want us to realize that our lives can now be lived on a higher plane. That we have your spirit and we can bear spiritual fruit. That you have done and are doing and will complete in us your transforming work. That we are citizens of heaven dwelling on earth. That we might live according to who we have become that we might live with knowledge, not ignorance of the glorious reality, that we can put up sails for you that we didn't know we had, that we can set a new course and begin to approach the Lord Jesus as a wife would her faithful husband, that we might entrust our life into your hands as you lead us through life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.